See him revealed before you in the flame. He alone, among all the creatures of the earth, stands with us at the dreaded point where worlds collide. He is, we are told, only a shambling, mindless man-thing. But these strange cultists see him as far more, as humankind's last hope for survival. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide through the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of 70s swamp-based monster comics. And today we're leaning heavily on the wacky. In fact, the next few episodes will be dealing with stories that are what most people think of when they talk about Steve Gerber's work. You know, the off-the-wall, the bonkers weirdness. Uh, you'll, you got your demons, you got your wizards, you got your interdimensional goddesses, and of course you have a secretive magical cult of evil. Or is it? But I'm getting ahead of myself. This particular issue, Adventure into Fear number 13, is just the first part of a three-part story, and if you can believe it, it's relatively tame when compared to the rest of the issues, so buckle up, it's gonna be fun. Also, I'll be talking in some detail about satanic cults in the 1970s, so that's neat. But first I want to do some quick self-promotion and talk about something that has been in the works for quite a while. In fact, it's been taking up most of my free time and really eating into my writing-slash-recording schedule. Not to mention my reading-for-pleasure schedule, which is a real bummer. So what is it, you ask? Or at least I imagine you asking that in order to keep talking. Well, first of all, there is now a fancy-dancy new website for Nexus of All Realities at nexusofallrealities.com. It's pretty simple. It's kind of slick. And in addition to the episodes, you'll find some articles related to the podcast and to Man-Thing, as well as some posts on comics in general. There's also a feedback form where you can leave feedback. I love feedback. Please do the feedback thing. <laughs> but... Uh, this site is also going to grow. I have lots of uh, plans for it, ideas for collaborations in the future, and some features I want to add to the podcast. And most importantly, much more time freed up for recording so I can get on a relatively solid schedule and not be so hap haphazard in release time. So that's cool, and I'd love it if you checked it out. Go to nexusofallrealities.com and let me know what you think. Again, the feedback thing. Do the feedback. But that's not all. Nexusofallrealities.com is just one of the network of sites under Daddy Elk Productions. It's sort of a larger umbrella of sites. Now, I've mentioned this before a couple of times on the program, but I'll recap to give some context. DaddyElk.com was something I started a few years ago. It was essentially just your typical blog where I spouted opinions and showcased my writing in, in a portfolio type of way. But over the years, it began to evolve into something more. It began to take shape into a showcase for science fiction essays, for comic reviews, for original stories, and various other endeavors, including, well, this podcast and a few others. Well, in collaboration with a few other authors and artists, DaddyElk.com has grown into Daddy Elk Productions, a network of different websites, all connected in a shared environment. It's really cool, and I'm excited about it. There are several websites there right now, including Nexus of All Realities, obviously. Uh, there's my personal site, paulmatthewcar.com, where you can read my fiction and creative memoirs and some of my artwork, although there's not much of that right now. And episodes of my other podcast, The Elk Cast, where you can hear the story behind why it's called Daddy Elk, which is kind of sweet. 
you should go check it out and leave some feedback. 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 Did I mention I'm looking for feedback? I am. I'm looking for feedback. There's also a sci-fi fantasy blog called Tachyon Emissions and a site for another writer named David Hicks who has a new novel coming out, which is very cool. Uh, actually, if you just go to daddyelk.com, you can see all the sites on the network and the latest articles and posts from all of them. The network is fairly small right now, but we're in discussions to add more writers and more shows, and I'm hoping it will grow and become something really special. You're also going to see quite a lot of output coming up because uh, several posts and episodes have been held back while the back end was in development and we got all the technical and blah blah. You don't care about that. Just go there and know that there's a whole bunch of stuff coming up soon. Okay, that was a long bit of business. Thank you for indulging me in that. And uh, as I said, I'm pretty excited about the network. I put a lot of work into it and I'm really looking forward to big things in 2017 especially since 2016 was a bit of a bummer for a multitude of reasons, uh, not the least of which was an election that just happened. Uh, I compare it to waking up in Vegas after a drunken bender and saying, wait, I married who now? Uh, <laughs> on that note, I'm going to play a trailer, and when I come back, I'm going to talk about Satan. The Fantastic Arse is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that Taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler, and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2 in 1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? In the 1970s, satanic cults were all the rage. Or at least that's what popular culture would have you believe. In apartment complexes, suburban planned communities, quiet rural towns, somewhere lurking beneath the all-too-normal exterior was a sinister group ready to induct you into the worship of the devil. Or maybe it was a handsome leader tucked away in some secluded mountain retreat or hiding deep in the desert, luring wayward youths to a life of sin. One day, you're a fun-loving youngster looking for some kicks. The next, you're sacrificing a chicken to Beelzebub. Evil's everywhere, kids, hidden in plain sight. It's a good narrative, one that many authors and filmmakers picked up on. And to be honest, one that many people actually believed was real. And to be fair, there was some reason for this. The most infamous example of a cult gone wrong is probably the Manson family. Charlie Manson, through a combination of charisma and drugs, convinced people that he was far more than just a man and had them commit despicable acts in his name. And the notion, the, the idea of the crazy, power-mad, brainwashing cult leader became seared into the public's mind. It wasn't too much of a leap to associate the devil with this. But where did this start, this notion of the evil cult in public thought? I think it sprung out of the hippie movement of the 60s, or 
should I say a misunderstanding of the hippie movement out of a distrust and an opposition to it. Now let me say first that cults are not a new thing. There are cults that go back to ancient times, but in the modern sense, or at least in the modern perception, you know, how cults are perceived, you can make a correlation between vehement distrust of youth culture, a rise in public awareness of violent crime, and the ability and dissemination of new ideas, social, political, and spiritual. These things frightened people, the confused people, and in order to make sense of it, well, obviously a nefarious organization or a capital E evil had to be behind it. And so the modern idea of the cult as a threat to civil society was born. Now, the hippie movement. See, the overarching idea of being a hippie was to drop out of society, to go against social norms, to be ruthlessly different. This often involved gathering in large crowds and dressing funny and ingesting copious amounts of various mind-altering substances. Also, making awesome music, but that's beside the point. What is to the point is that conservative, straight-laced, mainstream culture was horrified by this. Hippies were seen at best as disrespectful and at worst as flat-out evil. To add fuel to this growing fear of counterculture was the fact that they began to congregate in communities, communes. Now, on the surface, the commune was a nifty little idea. A group of people living together, each doing their own part, growing their own food, living off the grid, a pseudo-utopian ideal. And most of these communities were fine. They worked well for a little while, but eventually would disband over disagreements or disinterest. Many saw it as just an extended vacation before getting back to the real world. But in public perception, these communes were brainwashing factories where lurid sex orgies were performed while gobbling handfuls of LSD. And cases like the Manson family didn't dissuade people of this perception. Now, in addition to this, there was also the rise in Eastern spirituality, specifically Indian spirituality. This usually involves sitting with a teacher, a guru, going off on retreats in faraway secluded areas. And again, in reality, this was usually harmless, often helpful. You learned how to meditate, you ate vegetarian food, and maybe you didn't get angry so much anymore. But there were instances, very publicized instances, of gurus who preached abstinence and poverty while using their position to have massive amounts of sex and drive Rolls Royces. This gave rise to the idea of the charismatic teacher, the prophet, bending his unsuspecting subjects to his diabolical will, a charlatan who steals your money if you're lucky, your soul if you're not. Eventually these things, the sex drug commune and the charlatan guru became conflagrated, and the idea of the modern cult was nearly complete, but there was still one thing missing, the devil aesthetic. If you've ever seen a Hammer film of the late 60s, early 70s, you'll know that all self-respecting cult members wear long hooded robes, they carry ornate knives with long curved blades, they congregate in secret rooms entirely lit by dozens, if not hundreds, of candles. The walls, floors, and ceiling are painted with pentagrams, and at one end of the room there's always a high altar with a goat-headed fellow with a penchant for blood sacrifice. It's all very medieval in a theme park kind of way. In actuality, this look comes from the 20th century, uh, the influence of folks like Helena Blavatsky and uh, Aleister Crowley, who helped popularize Eastern mysticism, or at least their version of it, and the idea of hidden knowledge in the secret society. This subject is very long, very complicated, and rather interesting, far too complex to talk about here, but 
perhaps in future episodes. I'm sure Steve Gerber will give me reason to do that. Suffice to say that the look and feel was cut and pasted onto the template of the guru-led sex commune, and boom, the modern idea of the 70s Satan cult was born. Authors ran with it. Movies and TV, both mainstream and B-level quality. Novels and even music. Alice Cooper? Black Sabbath, anyone? Even the actual Church of Satan, started by Anton LaVey, took this stylized look and made it a reality. As a complete aside, uh, in the early 90s, I lived in San Francisco, and one day I was at a grocery store uh, standing in the checkout line, and two people ahead of me was Anton LaVey, with his bald head and his pointed goatee, and he very satanically bought a loaf of bread and some butter. And I remember thinking to myself, huh, the devil likes toast. This has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm talking about. It's just a fun thing to tell at parties. Now, of course, one of the authors who ran with the idea of the 70s cult was Steve Gerber. He liked putting cults in many things he worked on, but usually with a twist or a different take on the common idea. For instance, in this story I'm about to talk about. Now, Adventure into Fear number 13, Where Worlds Collide. Published April 1973, Steve Gerber writes, Val Mayeric pencils, Frank Boyle inks, Artie Simak letters, Ben Hunt colors, cover by Rich Buckner, Roy Thomas edits. In a mysterious candlelit room, a shadowy hooded cult calls forth the image of the Man-Thing, believing him to be the savior of mankind, and they prepare to read a prophecy from a sacred book, the Tome of Zerid-Na. But when they open the container where the book is stored, they find it gone. Meanwhile, in town, Jennifer Kale and her young brother Andrew tell the story of summoning a demon and being rescued by the Man-Thing to what is described as Jennifer's boyfriend, Jackson. Jackson doesn't believe a word of it because he's been to the swamp and he's never seen a demon, therefore it can't be true. He questions everything about their story. Demons, spells, magic books, everything except the fact that he has a very silly name. Jackson? Really? What the heck kind of a name is Jackson? But I digress. He then heads off in defiance to go sit in the swamp because he's that kind of a guy. The kids head home to find a group of people coming out of their barn, the cultists from earlier. Turns out their leader is none other than their grandfather, Joshua. Joshua has words with one of the cultists who feels he stole the Tome of Zeradnal for his own purposes. Joshua blows off this accusation but makes a mental note not to trust that guy. Back at the swamp, Jackson sits down next to a tree with his guitar and prepares to pose for a James Taylor album cover when he is attacked by a vicious beast that dissolves into dust and seeps into his skin. Next time you'll believe your girlfriend and not be such an ass, Jackson. Man-Thing sees this all go down and, feeling a malevolent presence, decides to follow Jackson. Elsewhere, back at the farm, Jennifer and Andy confess it was they who stole the Tome of Zeredna, and they were forced to burn it after summoning a demon. You know, like you do. But instead of being upset, Joshua is actually pleased because, since the Tome of Zeredna could never have done anything evil, it must have been a different book, and they were right to burn it. Whew, that was convenient. The three of them then come to a rather abrupt conclusion that Jackson is in immediate danger, and they speed off in their 1940s mob car to rescue him, only to find a possessed Jackson, who opens a portal and transports everyone, Manthing included, to a strange psychedelic netherworld, where they find themselves in the throne room of the demon Thog. Manthing is confronted with a hall of mirrors, where his hideous form is reflected endlessly, save for one, a man, Ted Salas. 
and Man-Thing remembers who he was. And as he does so, he is transformed back to his true self. Thog then makes him an offer. Kill the people he traveled with, and he can remain human. And as an added bonus, he offers him a stylized version of Ellen Brandt, his traitorous girlfriend. Ted is not troubled with these moral quandaries and is having none of it. He willingly turns back into the Man-Thing, and then he battles Thog by throwing his own minions at him. That's one of the more unique ways of fighting a demon, to be sure. As the creature fights, the Kales realize that they are only in an illusion, and if they stop believing in the illusion, it will be shattered. However, the illusion is focused on Man-Thing, and it is he who needs to realize the deception. This seems an impossible task until Jackson attacks Jennifer, cause he's a jerk. Ah, he's probably possessed, but still. Man-Thing defends her by grabbing Jackson and feeling his fear waits for him to burn, but he doesn't. This awakens something in him. The Man-Thing understands that it's not real, and suddenly they are back in the swamp and Man-Thing burns the demon out of Jackson, but unfortunately, he still remains a jerk. As the Man-Thing slumps off into the swamp, Jennifer realizes that she has some psychic link with the creature and can somehow communicate with him. Joshua then realizes that the two have a destiny and all of humanity's fate rests in their hands. All right, so this story starts out weird, then dials it up to 11 from there. But it's not just weirdness for weirdness sake. There's a lot going on here. And some very calculated moves by Gerber to advance his vision for the title, from simply the monster of the week to a fully formed world building. And of course, to indulge his wacky ideas. But let's start with just the main characters. We get reintroduced to Jennifer, who will become quite important later on in the title, and Andrew Kale, her brother, who we met two issues ago, but this time around, we also meet their grandfather, Joshua, who was mentioned last time, but we never actually saw him. And of course, there's Jackson, the David Cassidy-esque love interest. In the synopsis, I was a bit hard on Jackson, oh he of the silly name, but in reality, he's just a plot device. He exists to be the skeptic who blunders off into the swamp so that the protagonist can have an excuse to go rescue someone. I guess my problem with him is that he is such a 70s stereotype boyfriend handsome guy. The big dumb jerk who gets to be an ass to everyone because he's hunky and it doesn't matter how much he screws up or how mean he is to everyone, he still ends up with the girl because reasons. Gerber tries to add some interest to him by making him a guitar strumming swamp sitter, but that's just a bright shade of lipstick on that pig. Ultimately, Jackson is meaningless and I probably shouldn't get so hung up on him. Probably says more about me than it does the character, but hey, screw Jackson. But this story really revolves around Jennifer. It was probably smart to give Jennifer a psychic link with Man-Thing, at least in the beginning of the run here. You can imagine how difficult it must be to write for a character that can't speak or communicate in any way, actually, and doesn't really even comprehend basic social skills. I mean, Someone like the Hulk can still talk and get his point across, even if it's in a rudimentary kind of way. Man-Thing is just a blank slate. So giving Jennifer the ability to overcome this is necessary, even if it does seem a bit convenient. And then there's Joshua, the cult leader. This is what I was saying earlier about Gerber putting a twist on things. He and Mayeric depict the cult in all the traditional trappings I talked about earlier, but instead of it being evil, they actually seem to be the good guys. At least for the moment, anyway. 
In fact, they seemed to be just a bunch of folks hanging out in Joshua's barn, you know, getting together on a Saturday, doing the cult meeting before headed home for supper. Yeah, it's teased that there is some dissent in the ranks, and that'll come to a head later in the story, but overall it's quite normal. Even Jennifer and Andrew react nonchalantly as if it were a rotary or an elks meeting. Also, it might just be me, but Joshua kind of reminds me of Stan Lee, how he's drawn. I don't know if that was intentional, but it's who he reminds me of. Now, I know Gerber will do Stan Lee analogs later in his career that aren't exactly complimentary, but that's when he has a falling out with Marvel. And again, that's another story. Now, everything in the story escalates quickly. This is a typical Silver Bronze Age storytelling technique. We go from cult meeting to Jackson possession to Jennifer's book-burning confession to a portal to another dimension, all in the space of about five pages. If you think about that in today's deconstructed storytelling style, that would be five issues or more. I mean, the point where Man-Thing is turned into Ted, given his moral dilemma and transformed back again, is just a little over two pages. That would be a solid month of issues today. And I admit that this quick style of story can seem a bit rushed, at the very least. Things are dispensed with rather abruptly, uh, like the book-burning thing. That could have had a bit more space to breathe, but there is, at least for me, something really charming about just getting things done. No mucking about, just tell your story, plot point, plot point, plot point finale. It's exciting. There's so much going on. And regardless of what you think of the cramped story, you definitely feel like you got your money's worth. There's plenty of story wedged in those pages. And the prose. Gosh, the prose is so purple. It's so purple it's a bruise. Uh, let me just read one thing here that Thog uh, says to Man-Thing uh, when he tries to set him on fire during their battle. Eerie tongues of Mistophelean flame lick and swirl around the thing from the swamp but like the fabled bush of a millennia past, he is not consumed. Ha, <laughs> come on, that's awesome. And when he throws the smaller demons at Thog, that's just great fun. In fact, there's so much going on here that is pure, joyful playfulness. Uh, the other dimensions, the psychedelic art, the demon fire battles, it's tempting just to write this off as a bit of fluff, like I said, but Gerber is continuing to weave his mythology here. Not only is the swamp the nexus point of all reality, as I talked about in a previous episode, this is where Gerber is quietly making his book the center of all things in the Marvel Universe. He's now making his character, the goopy swamp monster that can't talk, the prophesized protector of, and savior of, the, of that universe. And by doing so, he is subtly saying that his silly monster book is more important than all the others. As I said before, and I'll say it again, the man had gumption. We'll be back right after this. Hello everyone, my name is Paul Matthew Carr, also known as Daddy Elk to my internet friends, and I like to make stuff up and write it down. Occasionally, I'll take those written down stories and read them aloud into a microphone to record them for others to listen to later. These bits of audio are collected into a neat little program called the ElkCast, and it's guaranteed to make you smile. Unless it doesn't, because life is a rich tapestry of sadness and euphoria peppered throughout a fragile existence, and no one person can really guarantee happiness in a complex, ever-changing, and diverse world. 
But I can tell you this, if you listen to the show, you'll not only get the aforementioned story, but also the story behind the story, anecdotes, and inspiration. And if you're not careful, you just might learn something. Spoilers, you won't learn anything, but you might be entertained, so why not give it a shot? Listen to the Elkcast, a storytelling podcast with me, Paul Matthew Carr. You can find it on multiple listening venues like iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and online at daddyelk.com. You won't be disappointed. Unless you are, you know, because of the whole tapestry thing. I probably could have sold that better. Okay, another episode comes to a close. This story continues in Adventures into Fear number 14, The Demon Plague, which I'll be covering on the next episode that will be coming out with a quick turnaround this time. I know, I know, I haven't been consistent, but this time I know it will come out on time because pre-recording. It's the way to go, baby. But seriously, thank you for putting up with my inconsistencies while I get my stuff together. And uh, if you get a chance, go check out the new uh, nexusofallrealities.com and, uh, and, and Daddy Elk Productions, which is the, the wider network. Uh, like I said, really uh, happy with it. Very excited about what's going to happen in the future. So love to get your feedback on that. Uh, feedback, that's a theme this uh, particular episode. So there's only one thing left to say, and that is... You've been listening to The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elk production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics and no infringement is intended. You can contact the show on Twitter, at Nexus of All, or online at the fancy-dancy new website, nexusofallrealities.com, and leave a comment on individual episodes. Or you can send an email to nexus at daddyelk.com, and I'll be your best friend. You can also find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Go on and leave a comment there. That would be awesome. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? All right, that's it. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and bye. Bye.